you'll want to get out your sermon outline that says God meant it for good. We're at the end of Genesis. Chapter 50, verse 15. We'll be starting there. So you can turn with your Bibles. You can follow along in the uh, sermon outline. But let's listen carefully as this is God's Word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph, lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the end of a marvelous book, and yet there's still much for us to learn here. So work your word into our lives this day, and by the power of your spirit, bring about needed change in each one of us. For this, as always, we need your grace, and give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're at Genesis chapter 50, the end of the book of Genesis. It's been well over a year in Genesis, 19 months to be exact. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you've learned something along the way. And my apologies to those of you who are here for the first time, but next Sunday we'll start a new book, and you'll be here for that. A lot has happened in the last 19 months. 19 months ago, at least during the school year, Joanne and I still had children living in our house. In the last 19 months, Potomac Hills has had a net gain of 22 families, with six or seven more still deciding. And in the last 19 months, we've had 18 babies born. 19 months ago, we were finishing up a capital campaign called For Such a Time as This, which was based on the book of Esther. And since then, we've added both Tom Rabino and Jeff Lee to the staff. We've been able to refocus some ministry. We'll be adding some new ministries in the fall. We're currently doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work, improving the administrative and financial 
processes and procedures of the church. And throughout August and September, we'll be reporting on what's going on in all of our various ministries. A lot happens in 19 months. So much so that as we come to the end of this great long book, you know, the the last day, it sort of reminds me of the last day of high school. I was thinking, like, we should be signing each other's yearbooks, you know? Like, dude, stay cool. You know, friends forever. Never change. Sorry about the girlfriend. Stuff like that. You know, it's just kind of weird. Like we've come to the end of this great run together. So I've been thinking about this a lot this week. and We've been going through Genesis between studying and teaching and writing and preaching. I've spent over a thousand hours working on Genesis. So it's consumed a good chunk of my life. So I'm going to miss it. It's been a great book and I've enjoyed it. And I hope you have as well. Let me ask you a quick question. How many of you weren't even here when we started Genesis? Okay, fair number. We have a lot of people gone because it's uh, summer. So you're all new since Genesis 1. Well, it's good to see you. We're glad you're here. And if you want, you can go uh, online and get all the sermons you missed. And it's all free, but you get what you pay for. Um, So, we're going to finish Genesis this week. If you have a Bible, we're at Genesis 50, verse 15. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series on the New Testament book of Colossians and give that a good run for the fall. So it's good to see everyone. So let's turn to the end of the book of Genesis and see how this story wraps up. Our text for today starts with fear and forgiveness. Fear and forgiveness, first blank in your outline, says when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brother and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I want you to use your imagination for a minute. Imagine that you're from a large family, a dozen or so kids, a family more blended than the Brady Bunch. And all the children are from the same dad, but they have four different moms. Imagine also that your dad is a sneak, and he's been one for a long time, and everyone knows it. Everybody knows he cheated your uncle out of the estate, And everybody knows he ran like a coward to avoid getting caught. Let's also imagine that your great uncle tricked your dad into marrying your mother's sister. He got your dad drunk before the wedding and had his ugly daughter go to the altar instead of the pretty one that your dad thought he was marrying. That didn't slow down your father, though. He just married them both. The one he loved couldn't have kids, so he slept with her maid. In fact, he had a habit of sleeping with most of the kitchen help 
And as a result, most of your siblings resemble the cooks. Finally, the bride your dad wanted to marry in the first place gets pregnant, and you're born, and you are the favored son, and your brothers know it. You get a car, they get a bike. You get Armani, they get Walmart. You get summer camp, they get summer jobs. You get educated, they get angry, and they get even. They sell you to some foreign service project, put you on a plane for Egypt, and tell dad you got shot by a sniper. You find yourself surrounded by people you don't know, learning a language you don't understand, living in a culture you've never seen. An imaginary tale? No. Obviously, it's the story of Joseph, a favored son in a bizarre family. He has every reason to be angry. If you remember, he tried to make the best of it. He became the chief servant, of the, essentially the head of the secret service. His boss's wife tried to seduce him, and when he refused, she pouted, and he ended up in prison. Pharaoh got wind of the fact that Joseph could interpret dreams, let him take a shot at some of Pharaoh's dreams, and when Joseph interpreted them, he got promoted out of the prison into the palace to become the prime minister, the second highest position in all of Egypt. The only person Joseph bowed before was the king, the pharaoh. Meanwhile, famine hits, and Jacob, who's Joseph's father, sends his sons to Egypt for a foreign loan. Brothers don't know it, but they're standing in front of the same brother they sold to their gypsy cousins more than 17 years earlier. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. A bit balder and paunchier, perhaps, but they're the same brothers. Now imagine Joseph's thoughts. Seventeen-some years ago, when he saw those faces last, they were looking uh, at him uh, while he was at the bottom of a pit. Seventeen-some years ago, when he heard those voices, they were laughing at him. Seventeen-some years ago, when they called his name, they were calling him every name in the book. And now is his chance to get even. He has complete control. Snap of his fingers, these brothers are dead. Better yet, slap some manacles on their hands and feet. Let them see what an Egyptian dungeon is like. Let them sleep in the mud. Let them mop floors. Let them learn Egyptian. Revenge is within Joseph's power. And there is power in revenge. It's intoxicating power. Haven't we tasted it? Haven't we been tempted to get even? You know, as we escort an offender into the courtroom, we announce, he hurt me. The jurors shake their head in disgust. He abandoned me, we explain. The chambers echo with our accusations. Guilty, the judges snarl as he slams down the gavel. Guilty, the jury agrees. And guilty, the audience proclaims. We delight in this moment of justice. We relish taking this pound of flesh. So we prolong the event. We tell the story over and over and again and again and again. Freeze frame that scene. I have a question, not for all of you, but for a few of you. Some of you live in that courtroom. The courtroom of complaint. Some of you are rehashing the same hurt every chance you get with anyone who will listen. And for you, I have this question. Who made you God? 
I don't mean to be snarky, but aren't you trying to do his job for him? After all, didn't God declare Hebrews 10? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And Proverbs 20 says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Judgment is God's job. To assume otherwise is to assume that God can't do it. Revenge is irreverent. When we strike back, we're essentially saying, I know vengeance is your God, is yours, God, but I just didn't think you would punish him enough. I think I better take this situation into my own hands. You have a tendency to be a little soft. Joseph understands all of this. Rather than get even, he reveals his identity. He has his father, the rest of the family brought to Egypt. He grants them safety. He gives them a place to live. They have harmony for 17 years. Then Jacob dies. And the moment of truth has arrived. And the brothers have a hunch that with Jacob gone, they're going to be lucky to get out of Egypt with their heads on their shoulders. So they go to Joseph and they plead for mercy. Starting with verse 16, they say, your father gave this command. We have no record whether he ever gave that command or not. But this is their plan. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And Joseph's response comes at the end of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know, what more do I have to do? I've given you a home. I've provided for your families. Why do you still mistrust my grace? And then he makes two statements to his brothers. Read very carefully. First, he asks them, verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's stating the obvious. Revenge belongs to God. Getting even belongs to God. Vengeance is God's. It's not ours. God has not asked us to settle the score. God has not asked us to get even. Ever. Why? Well, the answer is found in the second part of Joseph's statement in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Forgiveness comes easier with a wide-angle lens. And Joseph uses one so we get the whole picture. He refuses to focus on the betrayal of his brothers without also seeing the loyalty of God. To forgive someone is to display reverence. To seek revenge is to display irreverence. Now, forgiveness is not saying that the one who hurt you was right. Forgiveness is stating that God is just, he'll do what is right, and I'm going to trust him. And that's what Joseph does. He forgives his brothers, not because he's a great guy, or not because they've done something to deserve it, or not because of this story that Jacob told them to come ask. He forgives them because he has a great God who's wise and just and merciful, and he's learned to trust him. And that brings us to the last five verses of Genesis. I'm not going to go... Uh, through them or focus on them. Since this is my last message in Genesis, I'm going to take a moment to sort of look at the whole of Joseph's life, from which we can learn great lessons about suffering and faith. Suffering and faith. As you all know, last Friday morning, very early, there was a mass shooting 
in Aurora, Colorado. And among all of the many, many articles that were written about this tragic event, I thought this one was particularly interesting because it was written by a Christian filmmaker who's a resident of Aurora, Colorado. And she went to the movie that night. But she went with her friends who live in Denver. So she had been to this exact movie theater many times, but that night she went to a different theater with her friends because this other theater was showing all three Batman movies in a row. Here's what she wrote. It was supposed to be the most exciting night in movies all summer. My husband and I were at the theater for almost nine hours, cheering, laughing, and celebrating the conclusion to the Dark Knight saga with hundreds of eager fans. We followed the story of Bruce Wayne's journey, fighting for justice in Gotham from beginning to thrilling conclusion. It was only after the credits rolled and the audience departed with shouts of applause that people realized what had occurred while we and thousands of others had crowded into theaters in the Denver metro area. In our own town of Aurora, a portion of the chaos we had just witnessed on the screen had become a nightmarish reality. Twelve dead, sixty injured, frantic evacuations in an Aurora theater, five apartment buildings, and part of a medical school. The knowledge that dozens of our friends and family were watching the film that same night, and we had no idea how many had chosen Century 16 as their venue of choice. In the aftermath of mass tragedy, hearts turn immediately to the victims and their loved ones. As we mourn the departed, we reach out to devastated friends and families who are left behind. When a tragedy is at the forefront of national news, with headlines of fire with the names and memories of victims, many are quick to offer compassionate support. But the loved ones left behind need just as much support in the coming years. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Aurora, and other tragedies leave both victims and survivors in their toxic wake. These heartbreaking events are difficult for anyone to process, whether they witnessed it firsthand or watched it on the evening news. And I read that and I said, I think Joseph would understand this woman. Joseph was a man who had many, many trials in his life. He had been badly mistreated by his family, as well as by others whom he hadn't wronged. He had been sold into slavery. He spent the better part of his 20s in an Egyptian dungeon, separated from his father and his family, not knowing if he would ever see him or them again. Yet in spite of all of these trials, he could say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He knew that even though his brothers hated him at the time and were trying to get rid of him, behind them it was God who was at work sending Joseph to Egypt for God's sovereign purposes. After all, as we already read back in Genesis 45 a few weeks ago, Joseph had told his brothers, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's trust in the sovereign goodness of God carried him through terrible trials, free from bitterness and complaining. And that same mindset will help us to bear up under trials. Some of you have been through some heartbreaking trials. For some of you, heartbreaking trials are around the corner or in your future. We all get them. I hope that's not new news to anyone. To bear up under those trials that are a common part of life, we must trust in the sovereign goodness of God. And to trust in the sovereign goodness of God, we need to know a few things. First, we need to know that God is, in fact, sovereign over all, even over the evil things people do. In a fallen world, there are many evil people who will seek to harm you. Often, uh, as it was with Joseph, perhaps these evil people are family members. Could be a parent or sibling who abused you emotionally, physically, or even sexually when you were a child. In Joseph's case, his brothers hated him and were going to kill him had not these slave traders providentially come by at just the right moment. You have to keep in mind as you work through Joseph's story that at the time he was suffering, Joseph didn't know how the story would turn out. He couldn't flip to the back of the book. He didn't know if he, was, uh, if he just held on for a few more years, like 10, that God would raise him up as second to Pharaoh. But it's clear he did know one thing for certain, that God is sovereign, even over the evil things people do. That Joseph's trust in the sovereign God carries him through many days in the dungeon. Now, let me clarify that trusting in the sovereign goodness of God doesn't mean that you have to passively endure the situation. If you're being abused, you need to report it to the proper authorities. If you've been mistreated at work or at school, you need to take some action to deal with it. What I'm saying is that there is great comfort for the believer in knowing that however difficult your situation is, a sovereign God is still in control. The devil's not in control and the evil people are not in control. God is in control. And many scriptures teach us that God is sovereign even over evil men, and yet he's completely unstained by their sin. Numerous stories in the Bible. There's uh, just for a few, the story of Job. The Chaldeans raided and stole his camels, killing his servants. And these wicked men were not acting simply on their own accord, but were impelled by Satan, and yet God was over Satan, gave him permission to go so far and no farther. Satan could not do anything unless God allowed it. Take another story. God willed that the wicked king Ahab was to be killed in battle. Well, how did he do it? A demon presented himself before God with the plan that he go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And God granted permission, and the wicked prophets prophesied falsely. Ahab believed them. He went into battle and was killed. God's righteous judgment was carried out by a demon using deception, and yet God is not tainted by the evil. The prophets were responsible for following demonic counsel. Samson wants to marry a Philistine woman, clearly a sinful thing. And his parents tried to dissuade him 
from doing such a thing. And yet we read Judges 14, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Samson was sinning, and yet God sovereignly used that sin to achieve his righteous judgment. There's many more examples in Scripture. Rehoboam rejects the counsel of his elders, resulting in the division of the kingdom. But we read 1 Kings 12, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Nebuchadnezzar selfishly, brutally wiped out Jerusalem. Yet Jeremiah 1, 25, 27, and 50 tell us he's doing God's work. Cyrus, another pagan king, like all pagan kings, tried to uh, build his own empire for his own glory, is called by Isaiah God's anointed that God was using for his purposes. When wicked men falsely accused and crucified the Son of God, and yet Acts 4 says they only did what God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. So Joseph not only knew that God was sovereign over the evil his brothers had done, he realized God is sovereign over everything, even the insignificant things that we tend to shrug off as chance. Recall the story of when his father sent him out to check on his brothers, and he didn't find them where they were supposed to be. And a man comes wandering along and told him his brothers had moved the flocks to Dothan. So he goes to Dothan and finds them. And of course, that's when they capture him and throw him in a pit and plan to kill him. But it's precisely at that moment that this trading caravan happens to come by and they sell him into slavery back in Genesis 37. And as that caravan made its way south, you imagine Joseph had to be thinking, what rotten luck. Why did I happen to run into that man in the field who knew uh, where my brothers were? And why did that caravan come along just then when I thought Reuben was going to try to get me out of the pit? Where's God in all this? But Joseph doesn't believe in luck or chance or coincidence or happenstance. He believes in a sovereign God who sent him down to Egypt for reasons that at the time Joseph didn't know. So it's important to affirm God's sovereignty, not only over the major things that happen, but also over all the little uh, mundane, routine details of life. Car problems, traffic jams, interruptions, clogged drains, sick kids, and a million other frustrations in life, as well as all the bad things evil people do all under God's sovereignty. Calvin said God is sovereign over all or he's not sovereign at all. Nothing and no one can thwart God's sovereign, loving purpose towards you in Christ. And we need that mindset if we're going to endure trials. We also have to understand and affirm that God is good in everything he does. We've said numerous times throughout the story of Joseph that verse 20 is the key verse for this whole story of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now we know in the New Testament, in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God told Jeremiah uh, to tell the exiles as they're being carted off to Babylon, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. They're being carried off into captivity. And though God's people suffer, they must affirm by faith that God, even though he afflicts us with trials, he is good 
and does good in all his ways. Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and faithfulness. You have afflicted me. We don't talk like that. We don't think like that. We often don't believe like that. See, most of us are quick to see God's blessings in uh, all the good things in life. We see his goodness in blessings and his blessing in goodness. Our church has grown. We say God's blessed us. But if we had 22 people leave or 22 families leave, we probably wouldn't say God's blessed us. We'd say, what's wrong? We need a new pastor. Jacob was like that. When his sons first returned from having gone to Egypt, um, and they had gone down there to get grain, and this unknown lord of the land, who was actually Joseph, they didn't know it at the time, if you remember, he had taken Simeon captive. And he demanded that they come back and bring Benjamin. And jo Jacob just wailed. Genesis 42, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. But in fact, it wasn't all against him. The truth is God was for him. Because even though that trial of the famine was severe, it was used by God to reunite him with Joseph and to provide for all of his needs and all the needs of this large family for the rest of their life. So in times of trial, we can and must know that God is sovereign even over the evil things people do to us. We also know that God is good and he'll work every situation together for the good of his children. And finally, we must trust the sovereign goodness of God in the midst of our trials. And the reason we must trust God is it may be years. It may be in eternity before we figure out specifically how God is using our trials for good. C.S. Lewis said, the most common first word in heaven will be, oh. That we'll get there, we'll say, oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's why he said that. Oh, now I understand. C.S. Lewis was a smart guy. You know, Joseph was in that dungeon for years. He had to keep trusting God. Every morning when he woke up in that foul place, you know, I don't know what an Egyptian prison, you know, some 3,500 years ago would be like, I don't imagine it was good. Couldn't use your Hilton Honors points there. You know, it was, uh, I imagine, utterly miserable. And yet, what we know of Joseph is he got up in the morning and said, God, I trust you, that you have some good purpose in this. And I submit to your sovereignty, although I have no clue, and I don't understand it at all. For one, he may have had to do that a hundred times a day. But he did it some, or we never would have heard him say that God sent me here and he meant it for good. Trusting God's a mindset. It occurs in your thought life. It's a mindset that puts God at the center where he should be. If we're focused on ourselves, on our own happiness at the center, we won't be able to trust and glorify God in the midst of trials. But as we've seen, Joseph lived a God-centered life. And as Scripture makes clear, God's glory is the supreme thing. If we put our thoughts on glorifying God, regardless 
of our circumstances, showing by our faith that he is both sovereign and good. He will bless us in ways that we can't begin to understand. But if we're focused on ourselves and our own happiness, then when we hit those trials, trials, we're just miserable. There's a mindset we need in order to endure trials, and that's we have to trust in the sovereign goodness of God. Whatever it is that you're going through, you can know, though others may mean it for evil, God means it for good. And he wants you to trust him so that he'll be glorified in your life. Now, the common objection to this is it's so difficult to trust God in the midst of suffering. Sure, Joseph did it, but he was better than I am. But that leaves you with what? Trusting yourself or trusting in nothing? On the contrary, biblical Christianity contends that suffering should lead to faith. Suffering should lead to faith. Dr. Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City recently wrote about this topic providentially 10 days before the Aurora shooting. He writes, apologetics is an answer to the why question. Apologetics technically means the defense of the faith. And he says it's an answer to the why question after you've already given people an answer to the what question. The what question, of course, is what is the gospel? But when you call people to believe in the gospel and they ask, well, why should I believe that? Then you need apologetics. And a gospel-shaped apologetic must not simply present Christianity, but has to challenge the non-believer's worldview and show where it and they have a real problem. And he writes, I normally make this point by considering an objection to Christianity to show that at the heart of it there's some sort of faith assumption. Let's take the example of suffering. He writes this 10 days before the Aurora shooting. Someone will say, I can't believe in God because how could a good God allow suffering? Put it another way, they're saying, I know for a fact there can't be any good reason that a good God would allow this specific thing to happen. Really? There could be all sorts of good reasons why God allowed something to happen that caused suffering despite our inability to think of them. If you've got an infinite God big enough to be mad at, for all the suffering of the world, then you have an infinite God big enough to have reasons for it that you can't think of. You have to show people it takes faith to doubt Christianity. Again, C.S. Lewis, uh, his argument against God before he became a Christian was that the universe was unjust. And he asked himself, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Atheism turned out to be too simple. In the natural world, the strong eat the weak. And the natural world would argue there's nothing wrong with that violence. Where do you get the standard that says the human world shouldn't work like that? that the natural world is wrong. Well, you can only judge suffering as wrong if you're using a standard higher than this world, a supernatural standard. If there's no God, you have no reason to be upset at the suffering in this world. That's just the way it is. It takes faith 
to get mad at the world. Which brings us to the final point, the solution to our problem. At some point, you need to tell the Christian story in a way that addresses the things that people most want for their lives, things they're trying to find outside of Christianity and show how only Christianity can give it to them. There's a way of telling the gospel that makes people say, I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know whether I believe it or not, but I wish it were. You get to the beauty of it, and then you can go back to the reasons for it. And only then, when you show it takes more faith to doubt than to believe, when the things you see out in the world are better explained by the Christian account of things than the secular account of things, when they experience a community which they actually see Christianity embodied in healthy Christian lives and solid Christian community, many will believe, and perhaps you're one of them. Perhaps you need to see your life like Joseph saw his life. Perhaps you need to trust God in the midst of your pain and suffering and just keep walking with him while he works it out. Perhaps God is using your pain and suffering to heal your mind and mend your heart so that you might someday be able to share your story with someone else. Perhaps God really will Work it all out for good. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, there are so many things in our life we don't understand, we don't get, we don't like. We see tragedy, we see pain and suffering, both in our lives and in our society. And we don't understand. We don't understand when, while we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. We don't understand why we're not beyond your grace, but you tell us that we're not. We don't fully understand how the blood of Jesus covers our sins, but you tell us that it does. So we thank you this morning that pain and suffering doesn't get the last word, but that Jesus does. Thank you for welcoming us home with such costly love. Thank you for your word and all that you have taught us. Thank you for the sovereign goodness of God. We thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.